From reviews to rankings, the big picture is all things movies. From in-depth analysis of the latest flick to sit-down interviews with some of the biggest movie stars and filmmakers on the planet, Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins have got you covered. Check out The Big Picture on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast. David! A new Wall Street Journal magazine article asks, is it time to kill the book blurb? (laughs) You know, those little one-line recommendations on the back covers of books. What I want to know is, is it time to kill the book blurb? The old book publishing employee in me says, God, yes. Uh, The slightly out of the loop uh, bookstore customer of me I'm inclined to say no. Listen, you got to take the blurbs with like a million grains of salt. They're all BS. They're all written by friends and former classmates and 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 writers that have something in you know that have a, a debt to pay to the to the writer of the book or they're in trade for a, a future blurb or co-appearance <laughs> or something like that. They're they're all the premise is all BS. But yes. they do do a, generally do a good job of informing you what the of what the book has to offer, right? You just assume that it's over the top and it's too effusive or whatever else. But like, I would, I feel like I I glean more from a couple of blurbs than I do from the jacket copy itself a lot of the time, right? And actually, there's a there's other there's instances where, like, I read a lot of graphic novels and the graphic novels come out they don't have reviews on the back and so occasionally you'll get one line on the front that's like from another comic book writer who's just like this is a gym but there's no blurbs <laughs> or reviews with any substance in them and i find and i'm completely lost as to what like there, there's no way by picking up a graphic novel i can figure out which ones are supposed to be good or not right because even if you know stephen king's blurb on a novel is not totally heartfelt and i have no reason to doubt the wonderful blurbing work of mr king but you know for example if there's no reason to to believe that the blurbs are totally heartfelt they're at least is like they reach a level of you they reach a level where the blurb is worth giving out right where it's like this is either is this either actually a good book or it's actually a writer who might have a future in the business or it's a Uh you know there's some sort of validation that comes from just the existence of the blurb and like i said the one or two sort of like you know, frou-frou sentences that they write can actually convey a lot about the contents, even if they're not, even if the, even if the praise is over, is overdone. 
I have two reactions. This book is a gem is the ultimate book blurb. <laughs> Number two, I, I, I guess I'm, I guess I go either way on book blurbs, but I demand that they not be written like book blurbs. Yeah. You know how there's this formal language of the book blurb. David yes. Shoemaker has written an insightful study of the wrestling ring after 1998, mm-hmm. you know, a perfect book for someone. Just don't write like that. The people who are doing that are actual good writers. Most of the time, there's no reason to have to like put on your, your dinner jacket to then write a book blurb and write it in this really stilted way. Like you were issuing a statement. I, it's, it's so strange. It's so strange. You should just like, like dictate them over the phone. Like, what did you think? Like whatever, but you, but, but there is there, but I mean, I know working on the inside, there is actually like, you, you want to get so much information across, right. That you could, that, 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 you know, if you ever have to edit someone's quote or, you know, from time to time, ghostwrite a blurb for somebody who's promised to give one. And you do end up trying to you you do fall back on this on this very rote style and try to convey maybe too much in the quote. I, the one thing that always got me, and this is going off subject, the one thing that always got me is you would there's the blurbs have such a big presence. Everybody kind of knows they're full of it, but like the, the like when you if you if you paid a million dollars for a first time novel. The pe- the buyer at Barnes and Noble, when you go and present me like this is the best novel we've ever read, we paid more than we've ever paid for a book. We had this is the most the biggest deal you know on our list this year. The buyer will say like, well, did you get any blurbs? And it doesn't matter if you're like, well, if the answer, I mean, if the answer is no, or the answer is yes, I got three. There are three best friends who happen to be writers to write it. Like, even though there's no qualitative difference there, obviously they they desperately want this validation to be on the cover of the book. All of this is a long way of saying the thing I never got is it's so it's so mercenary. It's so, you know, PR driven, but still book publishing is too proud to do the thing that like every other industry does, which is like acknowledge like like when the Da Vinci Code came out. This is going way back. When that editor bought their next book, it was a major story in the publishing world, right? Because sure. it was the guy who had made the Da Vinci Code taking his next big shot. So why in the hell did they not just put from the editor of the Da Vinci Code on the cover of the next book? And there were there were towers of this book in Barnes and Noble, and nobody bought one because no because no readers knew there was a connection that everybody who was selling the book knew. Anyway. <laughs> Book publishers should always put from the editor of so-and-so on the cover of the book. Also, it gives, um, you know, good cred to the editors who work really hard. Anyway, moving on. Today's show is a gem, folks. It really is. Tiger Woods was in a car accident. We asked, did cable news cover it the right way? Plus your listener mail featuring one of my favorite corrections of all time. Really, it is. All that more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers brian curtis and david shoemaker here david let's begin with the coverage of tiger woods's car accident on tuesday because this feels like an occasion when your local media critic will write the tisk tisk how cable news mm-hmm. got it wrong story in fact yeah. there's one of those up at zombie deadspin right now but while i'm sure you and i can find plenty to hate about cable news as we do every day of the week i want to start out by having at least a little sympathy for the people trying to cover this story, because this strikes me as a very, very tricky story to cover. 
Yeah, I mean, this is not apples to apples, but you know, if if um, if Donald Trump Jr. Had led a rally in the you know District of Columbia and people started getting out of hand, all the news networks would go there immediately with live coverage and say this because this looks like or is adjacent to a thing that happened that is a major news story that we would be justified in covering all day. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but this felt in the beginning moments a lot like Kobe Bryant's death. And it it felt even maybe even more like some of the moments in the past where there was breaking Tiger Woods news. It took us a while to get our arms around, right? So I don't think anybody would be justified in saying they they were wrong and jumping in early and heavily to follow this. I mean, I don't, th- I mean, maybe someone would tisk tisk about that, but it's only because of that. It turned out to be not the tragedy that it sort of felt like, even if it didn't look like it. So at that point, well, you can I mean, if you jump in. I just feel like at some point, maybe they should have pulled back. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing by then every, you know, the producers were saying everybody's tuned in. Everybody's watching because of Tiger Woods, you know, update. So he can't really stop now. Although, I was watching MSNBC and they certainly tried to go back to confirmation hearings, you know, a a couple (laughs) of times. But I don't know. I mean, there's there's the there's a sort of if there's a moral argument, it feels like there's an emotional argument to balance it out. This felt like something that we should be covering full steam ahead. Does it did MSNBC really pivot to Nira Tandon? In the middle of well, they had been covering. See, okay, so this is an interesting. (laughs) This is sort of a sidebar, but MSNBC was doing what MSNBC does, which is covering confirmation hearings as if they're covering the apocalypse in real time, right? I mean, or whatever. This is like they're the 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 gravity of the music and the presentation is that of a major major story. So when something appeared that seemed to be more of well, it's not more, but a different sort of mass appeal major story. Of course, they went there without knowing exactly what was going on and then but then sort of had to justify the attention they were paying to the confirmation hearings along the way, which is easily justifiable, a different argument. Uh, But yeah, they did pivot back a couple of times and it was a weird tension between the sort of actually intellectually important thing that we are overblowing and the thing that might have been a bigger deal, but is now overblown because we're pretty sure there's no super tragedy there there was a lot of tension there but yes they did try see that see that's funny to me what you just put your finger on right there because it's almost like can we make the intellectual argument about should we be covering the near attendant hearings like this you know because it's just <laughs> this is a thing and somebody's gonna win and somebody's gonna lose and all that stuff and you're right it's the the thing we should be covering but we're making perhaps too big a deal of or treating with this kind of weird countdown clock sort of treatment versus mm-hmm. this thing that we kind of maybe don't think we should be covering this way. But in fact, there's a huge demand for us to cover, which is what's going on with Tiger Woods. Well, I mean, and, and listen, Nicole Wallace maybe probably did the best job of any of the MSNBC hosts at, for somehow at covering the Tiger story. But yeah, I mean, MSNBC, it did feel like that, that not, by not switching the host duties, there was a kind of this weird mental disconnect, right? I mean, you, you wish that you had uh, like Harvey Levin on speed dial that you could just like bring him into the studio and make him host coverage of like celebrity coverage when it's the biggest news of the day. Not actually Harvey Levin, but someone of, you know, have have someone who's more of either a straight anchor or a or someone who that's more in their wheelhouse. But but yeah, it, it was a it, it, it was an odd 
there was an odd tension the whole way through. ESPN had like the miniature version of this, right? Where they went to the jump at some point during the day, even though this was clearly an ESPN world, the biggest possible story happening right now is what oh, is, right. what's going on with Tiger Woods. But they had to go to the basketball show and there was somebody tweeted out a headline from their website that said Kendrick Perkins wishes Tiger Woods the best or something <laughs> like that. You know, I think that's where we were during the news cycle. I mean, what is interesting to me about this is Tiger Woods is one of the world's most famous athletes. He's one of the world's most famous people. He's in a car accident. Information about it was pretty sketchy at the beginning. Later, we kind of got a sense that the injuries were very, very serious, but not life-threatening. So then cable news and all of us really have this issue where there's this huge demand to answer the question, what's happening with Tiger Woods? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Is he going to be okay? And there's really not a lot of information to provide. But if you are CNN and you cut away from that coverage and go to near a Tandon or, or whatever else you think it is, people tuning into your news network are going to be like, wait a second, what's going on with Tiger Woods? Mm-hmm. Like, I just heard about this thing and I want to know what's going on, or I at least want news anchors to be talking about this story. So it's actually like just like a it's a it's a it's a really tough it's a tough one. It's not it's not easy. And I just think people saying like, well, this wall to wall coverage, like, I'm sorry, Tiger Woods being in a very, very serious car accident is a huge story. Yeah, I don't I don't feel I don't feel like that that's even a close call in terms of is this newsworthy? Yes, it's newsworthy. Yes, it's absolutely newsworthy. Yeah, it's absolutely newsworthy. And, you know. More importantly, probably it's what everybody's paying attention to. I mean, honestly, do you if you're if you're any of these networks, news, sports, just your regular networks, uh, are you are you just going to hand over like every like just just give up, just put your arms in the air and say, everybody go to Twitter if they're if this is what you care about? I mean, no, you they you have to do your best to respond in real time to the well trending topics if we want, want to speak in twitterese right i mean it's it seems like this has to be i mean the sort of thing that every tv channel you know news channel has had meetings about over the past year or 10 years right when things are this important we go full steam in that direction and presidents and networks have had presidents hired and fired based on like those exact sort of edicts totally the incentives are going to be to cover it too much rather than cover it too little and mm-hmm. cable news, because if you cover it too much, then your local media critic complains after the fact, look at this saturation wall to wall coverage. Did we really need all that coverage? And but if you don't cover it enough, that's when you get in trouble because people change the channel. Yeah. Or your viewers actually get mad and like, I'm out of here. I'm going to I'm going to go someplace that's telling me about this. This big story. I was reading this piece in Deadspin that I mentioned. Let me just give you a paragraph or two of this to, to kind of run through the run through the criticisms as the tweets alerts and headlines about Woods's accident began to pop up on my phone and TV. I watched in the same way I did a year ago when the news of Kobe Bryant's helicopter crash went viral. It was like watching a reshoot of a bad movie, but noticing that the writers and directors were making the same mistakes they did in the original cut Were Woods's injuries life-threatening or not was serious damage done to his legs or was he okay? Was this bad driving or were alcohol and narcotics potentially involved? And then there were those who thought this was a hoax They've since deleted those tweets, but we know who they are. The damage is already done. See, the thing about 
criticism like that is I can't actually tell what we're talking about here. Are we talking about cable news? Or are we talking about cable news and everybody who said something about Kobe on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Because if we're trying to do, if we're trying to criticize the latter, it's never going to be good. Twitter's not good today. Twitter's not going to be good tomorrow. There's no, yeah. there's no, there's no possible sense where you'll be like, oh wow, uh, a horrible news event has happened, or a really concerning news event has happened. Today, everybody's going to be great on Twitter, including the guy at Barstool. That that's never going to be a day. <laughs> that's never going to happen. No, absolutely not. I mean, if you're making a this is what's wrong with our culture argument, it's kind of hard to pin any blame on the networks or on media in general, right? Because you're you're unless you think that, you know, CNN should be the sort of like moral leader of our com- of our country, of our of our society, then and I'm sure no one's making that argument, at least not in good faith, then I don't know then what of course they're going to be if, if the problem is with our culture is with our society then of course the news networks and sports networks are going to be covering this wall to wall right if we're all that kind of irrationally obsessed with it or something then of course they're going to be covering it but I, and again i don't i would i would only push back slightly and i know you're not you don't mean this but just to say irrationally obsessed with this yes i am very interested in what has happened to the most famous athlete or one of the most famous athletes in the world yeah yes i am interested in that I'm not a TMZ person. I'm not an inner lives of celebrities person normally, but this strikes me as a very normal thing to be interested in. And I think, by the way, the fact that this happened in Los Angeles and the fact that TMZ, as they were with Kobe Bryant's death, is mixed, is sort of, you know, covering this and around this, that it feels in a way like one of those, like a celebrity story, or at least there's a a whole celebrity lives of celebrities element mixed into this story. Mm -hmm. I honestly think that is part of what happens with something like this because everybody's radars go off and they go, Oh, I, uh, I feel uncomfortable with this Mm -hmm. or I shouldn't be watching this. Like it it feels like, you know, something else on TMZ's website. And I'm like, something can be a very legitimate news story and also be a TMZ story at the same time. Yep. And I kind of think, that's what happened here. Yeah. I mean, it does feel, especially like by the time that we all started changing the channel, it did, it did feel a little bit icky. I mean, I think my wife walked in at the, I mean, after it was all but established that tiger was fine and, uh, you know, certainly injured, but like was not in any mortal danger. And, uh, we all kind of had a pretty clear picture of what was going on. And she and she said, like, why Why is this? Why are they doing this? Meaning the channel that I was watching. And I had to explain what we just talked about, how it looked when it started. And, and um, you know, the sort of imperatives for, for, for airing it, you know, covering it in the way that they were. And, and it made immediate sense. But it's a very practical argument. Right. And, and you're and it's a practical argument in reaction to a. A, you know, an emotional one or, or you know, it's it's it feels weird in the pit of your stomach. But that but that's not like if you were there from the beginning, there wasn't any sort of like disconnect there. Right. I mean, it, it well, there was in some viewing some of the channels, but but I mean, we but it was clear why it was covered that way. I don't think that there's I don't think that anybody w- would do it differently if they had to do it all over, except. I mean, so, I mean, certainly at the very beginning, it felt like the, the one the one thing that I don't know, I don't know if this is something to be critical of. The one note that I would have is that when when Kobe Bryant died, since that's the point of comparison here, you could tell that he died in the way that they were covering it before anybody had the green light to say that he was dead. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it like you could tell that the people on TV knew that he was probably dead and that affected the way that it was being covered 
just the way they were even, handling the story and the tone, the tone using. of their voice, the tone. Of, yes, exactly. The tone literally and figuratively. And it did feel like that at the beginning of this Tiger Woods story. They had people, you know, people calling in, you know, sports writers, whoever else, and who were just who were speaking as if Tiger Woods had died. And that affected, I think, the way everybody was reacting to it as well. Of course, they didn't know any better and they want to be sufficiently grave if in ter- if it does turn out that it was that tragic. Um, you wouldn't want to be like making light of a situation or anything. But I think the only thing, all that's to say, if they had it to do all over again, I think the only thing that any channel would do differently is to be slightly less downbeat at the beginning of the coverage, right? I right. Mean, but that was unknowable information. Of course, right? of course, yeah. And you want to be cautious. And as you say, like, again, the mistake to make is to have the wrong tone. You know, it's more, it's better to be safe, right? And say, look, we don't know what's going on. We're, we're treating this as a very, very grave situation without information. That just seemed, that seems like common sense. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, when there's a version of breaking news that involves politics or an important figure in government history, world, world events, let's say. The cable channels have people that are ready to just come on TV and be on TV for a really long time. Mm-hmm. They've got Michael Beschloss. They've got John Meacham. They've got guys who are just like, your role here, even when if we don't have information or if there's nothing, there's no reporting you're going to add to the story. It's just essentially to come on and tell us about this person. Mm-hmm. Tell us who that remind us who they were. Uh, remind us, you know, what they went through, remind us why they're important, that kind of thing, because that, 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 that is a, that is a role on cable TV in a, during a story like this. Yeah. And I noticed like CNN had Bob Costas come on, who's now a contributor over there. He was the, he is the perfect person to do this for a sports story. I think Mike Tarico came on MSNBC or NBC at one point to do sen- essentially the same thing, but, right? but it's a very particular role. Because you have to understand the history of this person and you have to just kind of be able to talk on television for a really long period of time. Yeah. Um, even if, like I said, you're not sort of, you know, what are you going to, you, you know, again, you're, you're waiting for information just like everybody else. But you just have to be able to sort of talk about the subject that everybody else is talking about. Yeah. I'm, uh, it, it is an interesting role. Um, and it's sort of necessary one. You're right. I mean, it's it's a sort of it's a it, you we need a lot of the viewership needs background, right? Even a lot of sports viewers, someone who might know exactly who Tiger Woods is, does need a sort of frame of reference for for who they are and 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 their significance. And I think the significance that argument is 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 important there too, because I think even in moments of like a national tragedy, we sort of need. Well, not a justification, but we sort of need to explain to ourselves and to each other why we feel why we're mourning the way that we are. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, You have to have voices talking over even the most tragic pictures on the screen. You know, no matter how many words a picture is worth, we we have to make sense of it. And and the way that we do that as a culture is like storytelling. You know, and you have to you explain why we care about the things that you know, we're looking at and feeling things for. And I think the thing I'd add to that is that what that figure does is it softens the edges of the rest of the coverage. Mm -hmm. Right. So if like, if CNN or MSNBC covering Tiger Woods and showing the same, you know, 10 seconds of footage over and over again, feels a little invasive, feels a little tabloidy in some kind of sense. 
when you go to that figure, they're the one reminding you about the challenges in Tiger Woods' life, Tiger Woods' kids, Tiger Woods' family, Tiger Woods' mm-hmm. parents, right? They're, they're the ones who are sort of saying, okay, if we've gone, if if this feels you know like something that you're wondering whether you should be watching, I'm going to kind of tonally reset for you. Yes. And in a way, want, you know, provide the sort of provide the the sustenance to the coverage, but also just kind of, I think, make the viewer feel a little bit better about being part of that experience. Totally. And that feels like a really important ingredient, you know, as cable news rolls out a story like this. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, especially important when you're talking about a cable news, not just not ESPN, but one of the news networks sort of refocusing their you know refocusing the camera onto a sports figure someone who's not a, a part of the daily coverage of the of the channel um but yeah in a bigger sense it does it it, it softens it. it 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 justifies it in a lot of ways yeah and again i don't want to i don't want to make it like david and i are sticking up for everything that was done on cable news over the last 48 hours we're not we're not i just feel that this is one of those stories where it's tricky. It really is really, it really is tricky just to get the tone right and to figure out what you're saying and figure out at what point do we stop covering this every minute of the day and 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 do something else before we come back to it. Trying to trying to understand what is our commitment to news here, what is our commitment to what our viewers want to watch here. Uh-huh. And balancing those things with also our sort of judgment about what people need to be watching. It's a it's a really interesting question. David, let us do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod, where they are always gratefully received. David, we had a little Bruce Springsteen news. Oh, man. Okay. I'm I'm aware of the news. (laughs) Yes. According to the Washington Post, Josh Hawley, if others haven't seen it, quote, DUI charges against Springsteen dropped. After tests showed his blood alcohol level was below the legal limit. Now, we were groping the other day for the right Springsteen pun. At this news, CNN's Jake Tapper tweeted, wrecking ball like B-A-L like blood alcohol level. Wrecking B-A-L. Oh, my God. And my question is, is that better or worse than dancing in the drunk? I don't think I would put either of those in it on, on, on my list, but you know, I, I'm sure there's a better one out there. Until we find one, I'll just give them each a nod. Sure. Thanks to Lacey Ward and JW for pointing that out. Funny moment from the U.S. Senate this week, David. A CNN Chiron said Senate holds first hearing on insurrection at U.S. Capitol. Senate holds first hearing on insurrection at U.S. Capitol. The picture of the senator speaking was Josh Hawley from Missouri, (laughs) who, of course, was wrapped up in said insurrection, at least at a rhetorical level. It was an overworked Twitter joke to put Hawley in a hot dog suit and write, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. Thanks to Austin Alter. And finally, David, have you followed the shenanigans over at CPAC? Yes, only only from afar, obviously. The Twitter account of the annual conservative conclave writes, we have just learned that someone we invited to CPAC has expressed reprehensible views. <laughs> it was an overworked Twitter joke to write, 
you're going to need to be a little more specific. <laughs> we would have also accepted, I can't believe they disinvited Trump. Thanks to a whole bunch of people for that one. You saw the guy they disinvited was Young Pharaoh. Yes, I did. Who CNN describes as a hip-hop artist and right-wing social media figure. Okay, <laughs> He was disinvited for anti-Semitic tweets. The theme of CPAC this year is America uncancelled. <laughs> America uncancelled and they... Yeah. If you wallowed in uncancelled culture, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Let us do some listener mail, David. You, you mailed me a story right before we started this thing about Twitter and a new premium tier of Twitter user. What was that about? Oh, well, I, man, you're, you're putting me on the spot to know the details here. But apparently there's going to be a basically a paid version of Twitter um, where, you know, premier users. I mean, you, ha- you obviously have to opt into it, um, but where you can charge for access to, you know, premium tier of tweets, sort of like a Patreon thing. Or right? I'm sure there's a million other social media um, examples of it. But my mind immediately went to. Well, two things. One, that there's going to be there, there's a sort of tier of of news breaking reporter, particularly in the sports world that we talk about a lot, who stand to earn a lot of money from something like this. And parallel to that, there's a sort of workers rights issue. Right. I mean, I'm sure a lot of this stuff is carved out in the contracts of like your, you know, Adrian Wojnarowski's and, and people like that. I mean, they, they, they have good agents who who are on top of this. Um, but it is a really interesting question, right? Where like, whenever that, whenever the, you know, Woj and ESPN came to the last deal, and I'm just using him as a, as an example, cause he's the biggest name, right? But you could say Adam Schefter, you could say Shams, you could say a lot of people. Sure. The, 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 the people who are newsbreakers first and foremost, and, you know, writing journalists or, or talking heads second and third or whatever else, um, 
the, I mean, the great value that they provide to that the Woj provides to ESPN is to is basically be having the profile that he has on Twitter, right? I mean, it's he he does all this other stuff for him, but he drives traffic to the site from by breaking news on Twitter. Now, however much money he gets paid, and I am you know sure that it's a lot by ESPN, I guarantee that he can make all of that in one NBA offseason alone, charging five bucks a a, a viewer for an off season of coverage, right? I mean, he, that, that can be, that is a, an, a massive amount of money that he stands to make doing that. Now, and setting aside all the, you know, that hoops hype is going to, is going to aggregate it all and whatever else. There's still a lot of people who care that much about breaking news. Obviously that's why ESPN pays him all the money that they do. The question is going to be, is he allowed to do this on the side? People like him, are they allowed to make some money on the side if they want to have a premium tier? If not, is ESPN going to be very motivated to recoup some of their investment in this person by themselves taking this money, you know, having like a ESPN insider apparatus on, on Twitter and various other social media. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's a really obvious question where if you're someone of that very highest high profile, do you even need an employer anymore? If Twitter, your main outlet is going to become your, you know, is going to be provide a better financial incentive than being in a big company. So super follows, which this is called, becomes the new Substack. Mm -hmm. Essentially, I am I am going to monetize my Twitter account. I don't need my employer anymore. To for a certain, as you say, very very select group of people. Sure, it's interesting because the Twitter newsbreaker, the tension with them, the t the tension was always like my I I'm doing a huge percentage of my work on that platform rather than the platform of my actual employer. Yeah. So I'm, I'm bringing them attention. And of course that informs in the sports case, their TV shows and their chat shows. And I'm breaking some news on TV and that kind of stuff. But like I am, I'm doing my work product over here and it's not directly benefiting you in the sense of like, I would breaking the news on your website, like a New York times reporter. Most of the time, though, sometimes reporters also break news on Twitter, I guess. But like now it's like, well, what if I just, what if I'm just literally getting paid for that stuff too? In addition to, in addition, to just breaking news over there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, to be, I always take arguments in this direction. There's actually was a recent situation that was slightly similar to this in the world of professional wrestling, where WWE basically said that all of their employees who had Twitch accounts and, you know, other third-party media accounts had to stop doing it. Now, WWE is this whole separate thing because they call their employees independent contractors, even though legally it's really hard to make that case. And there's, you know, a very odd, long-standing working relationship between the parent corporation and the people that go out there killing themselves to make it money. But um, there, I mean, there is this, there was a very short standoff where some, I mean, where, there were a lot of WWE employees who were making as much or more money doing on like Twitch streams than they were for on their real contract. And, uh, and WWE was like, well, we want all that money or you have to stop doing it basically. And there's, you know, obviously a, a, there's a different argument when it's a workers or, you know, when it's an independent contractor issue about what, at what point you're allowed to do work off the clock or, you know, when you're not employed, but sure. It does stand a reason if you're Woj and, and ESPN is is hiring you because of the success you've had on your own that you created for yourself in the social media world. 
to what degree do they have control over what you can do there? I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. And even if, like I said, they signed a contract that said Twitter is a carve out. ESPN has no control over what just I don't know if they have, but that's like a, the, the normal kind of thing that someone would say, oh, my podcasting life is carved out from this contract or whatever else. If they've agreed to that, are they still bound by that <laughs> now that there's this huge financial incentive for Woj to care and everyone else to care even more about what happens on Twitter and less about what happens in their day job. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's a very interesting world. I guarantee that we will see either a workers, a worker employer standoff on a major, major name or someone in that top tier just ditching the employer at some point in the next year or two. If if the super follow thing catches on or is established enough and and and, and to the point where it could really be justified. I mean, the difference between Substack and this is that Twitter is a major player already. And all yep. they're doing is letting you opt in to a way to make, it would be like if YouTube started monetizing today, right? Then suddenly there's all these, all the, in anyone that has a big YouTube channel would just be like, well, why am I doing anything else but this? Cause now the money's gonna start rolling in, right? So uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very, it's gonna be, a, a, it's gonna be something to watch. What are the odds that Twitter selects you and I as super follows, do you think? Well, I, I, that's why I actually brought this up. But <laughs> I wanted to ask if you're interested in a... Oh, we're going to do the negotiation right now, I see. Let's, yeah. let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, no, I mean, it, it's a, it, it'll, it, I think the odds of that are zero. But I think the odds of us talking about super follows on this show in the coming year are, are 100%. You don't think there's a premium tier uh, for me when I pass along the news that a sports writer at a small town newspaper has passed away? You know, I think there's like somebody's <laughs> going to pay... $5 a pop to read that kind of stuff. Well, if you can't get it anywhere else, Brian, then maybe the super follows the way to go. Yeah, I do have the market cornered in a way. All right, David, this is uh, from Seth Sommerfeld. What is the issue that you feel like has the most weight? You're not doing any better than Trump at this potential to take hold of the media narrative and blow up against Biden, if not remedied soon. So he's, he's pointing out, right, the take on Donald Trump was like, Donald Trump is bad at this issue and this issue and this issue and this issue. So what if Joe Biden has momentum stall and he gives some examples here, immigration, stimulus checks, postal service issues, which of those are we going to see media members say, aha, Joe Biden is not even better than Donald Trump at what? I think that the, I mean, the, the, the thing, I mean, the, 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 point of comparison that springs to mind was the Obama administration's sort of drone warfare policy. And in general, their kind of Middle East conflict policy that went under discussed during that eight, those eight years and have sort of become a point of discussion more so after the fact. Uh, um, but I do think that, I mean, it does seem like, I don't know. So it's hard to imagine exactly what that would be because that was not given a whole bunch of discussion or a whole bunch of airtime during the Trump administration. So it has to be something that people identify with the Trump administration, right? So, um, I mean, certainly the Postal Service, if it, it, I just don't see how that could be the one, but that was, you know, an identifiable problem for the mm -hmm. Trump administration in the, in the, at the end. I think it has to be immigration, and I don't think it's any accident that the Biden administration is making big moves on integration immigration right now so early in the, the administration when when one might not have expected them to um it could because i think that everything that happened uh, on the border everything with ice i think that that's going to that that is policy wise 
probably the great sin of the Trump administration and and um, and and the, the area where the Biden administration does need to get the most distance in terms of that the question that you just asked. Yeah, and to Seth's point, it's the thing that would would actually be really hard for Biden to actually solve on his own. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about what did Biden learn from Obama? Well, Obama wanted really, really wanted an immigration reform bill. He first, the first thing he did was he didn't get it done in his first hundred days because he was worried about saving the economy. He was criticized for that, but he really wanted it. But he was stimmied by congressional Republicans from getting it. George W. Bush really wanted an immigration reform bill, was stimmied by congressional Republicans from getting it. So if Joe Biden wants it, he could still face the same hurdles, but then be blamed because nothing got done mm-hmm. in this kind of way. It's like, oh, wow, Donald Trump had a rotten, evil immigration policy. Joe Biden is pursuing a more benign immigration policy, but he can't get his passed. Therefore, he's just doing like in some weird media brain way, he's doing the same bad thing as Trump or he's not making any more progress on this issue, whatever it is. I could mm-hmm. see that being a trap for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. There is a sort of political conversation that's going to go on on the, you know, on amongst liberal voters or just liberal activists. And the one that's going to go on and you're right, the, the media brain sort of thing, the, the sort of semi disingenuous journalistic argument of is he any better than the person that came before him, which I think is sort of a separate yeah, a separate category where you can make, you know, you can write that article on just about any subject whenever you wanted. But 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 that is going to be he's going to be wide open on both counts there if if he doesn't make a big move. Almost all these things are different categories, right? Like Donald Trump pursued a really, really awful policy on blank. Then the second category is Joe Biden is unable to make blank more humane because the government and American politics is structurally lined up to prevent him from doing this, mm-hmm. prevent him from doing what he wants to do. Like those seem like completely different boxes, but we'll see how much they get smushed together. This is from Isaac Crawford Ritchie. What are your favorite movies, shows about newsrooms or journalists? And as people who have worked in newsrooms, what movie show has had the most accurate depiction of them? Oh, so glad you asked, Isaac, because I just wrote a story today <laughs> about a new documentary. And this is not to plug my story, but to plug uh, the movie a little bit. It's called Collective. It's a Romanian documentary directed by this guy named Alexander Nanau. And it is about a daily sports newspaper in Romania that wound up breaking an amazing series of what you would call just straight news scoops that changed Romanian society that changed Romanian politics that after a time led to the resignation of various government ministers. And it's funny, David, like I've, there's certain scenes in this, in this movie that are just really cool newsroom scenes. Like there are all these whistleblowers from various hospitals and various parts of uh, society that come into this newspaper and they filmed it. They filmed Mm -hmm. them like coming in and telling the reporters everything they know holding up documents, bringing a video in from a hospital, things like that. And it's, I've just never seen whistleblowing (laughs) happening in real time in this sense. And that was like a revelation for me. Uh, The movie is not only a shortlisted for the Oscar for best documentary, but the Oscar for best foreign feature film period. So collective. 
check it out. There's a, there's a good recommendation. Maddie Wasserman, when you guys are doing interviews, do you generally have a good BS detector or sense for whether the interviewee has actually read any of your work slash listened to your podcast before, as opposed to just seeing you as yet another media appearance to check off the list? Well, I think BS detector aside, um, if someone says something nice to me, uh, I believe them 100% whether or not there's, (laughs) (laughs) whether or not there's any reason to believe them. Um, David is a journalist, so we are, we are all susceptible to flattery. I, I mean, I'm sure there's an exam, I'm sure there are examples here, but I feel like people are usually pretty straightforward, which is to say they compliment you if they have a compliment, if they mean it and they just avoid any sort of commentary if they don't, you know, or they engage with you sort of as a human, um, without, I don't, I can't remember sometimes any time when I've heard someone say that they're a big fan of a podcast that I do or something and, and have it be any, and have it seem like a lie, but maybe I'm just oblivious to it. Well, I think you could kind of generalize it, right? Like I'm a big fan of everything you guys do. Oh yeah. 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 You oh know, no. Yeah. There's definitely people who say, well, I'm who a give, huge who, fan of the ringer and everything yes, you guys do. Yes. To me, that's the kind of generic compliment that means I don't really listen to your podcast. I don't really know who you are, but I like the ringer and I like bill and I like everybody. So. Sure. I want to include you in compliment. And by the way, nobody needs to know who David and I are or listen to us or read us or anything, but that's not a prerequisite to coming on the podcast. Like we're, we're asking, right? (laughs) There's not, there's not like a test, you know, what was David Shoemaker's last wrestling piece that, that doesn't come up. So they, they can hate us. They just have to come on. Like that's, that's what we're, that's what we want. (laughs) There's no. There's no, there's no need to actually, uh, to, to actually like us. This one comes from that guy. You guys have some very great interviews. If you could do one, no holds barred interview, then retire. Who would it be with? Who? Uh, I mean, you've, you've checked off a lot of, I mean, probably every box that you could check off in terms of like sports media, right? All the, the list that you would have made 10 years ago has been finished. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I don't know that there's a white whale out there that I'm still pursuing in that in terms of that. No. I don't, I don't say I don't say there's a self compliment, just like this is like a smallish number of people, that kind of thing. You know, I'm trying trying to I'm not I'm not I can't think of somebody that's like, oh wow, I've always wanted to talk to that person and haven't been able to. Um, but I don't know. I mean, if it, it just in terms of the press box, um Man, I mean, what would be the who who would be the one person that we would what would be the the what would be the press box retirement episode? I don't know. I don't either, but I bet it's a big author is who it is. I mean, you and I could just think of general famous people that we would love to talk to and love to interview mm-hmm. at any time. But in terms of like in the bounds of this podcast, I'm guessing it would be like a big author, maybe fiction, maybe nonfiction. I'm not sure. John Grisham come on the press box? Is that what you're <laughs> Well, if he wants to. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's like, you know, I don't know that there's like one. I mean, is that like you know, I've I've seen your bookshelf, David. I know yeah. the kind of people you like. I don't know if mm-hmm. I can point to like one person that you've always wanted to talk to that you haven't just been able to talk to. No. But I bet I could find like 10 that you would think, oh, this is a really cool to talk to this person. Sure. And like discuss books with them, literature with them, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let us let us think more on that question, and maybe we'll even get them on the press box. Yeah, I know. Let's put the maybe if we put the list together, we could actually make some of them happen. We wouldn't even have to retire. After we talked about Rush Limbaugh the other day, we got a note from Mike Shaw is staying six feet away from you. Uh, he writes: Newspapers infamous, infamously, excuse me, have pre-written obits 
for celebs, notable figures who could go at any moment. Mm-hmm. How many remembrance emergency pod outlines for media figures do you have that are ready to go? For whom? And who are your guests? Oh, man. This is kind um, of supposing that David and I are way more organized uh, than yes. we actually are. Uh, I I don't have that many. I mean, every time, you know, I write a lot about d- dead wrestlers, obviously. Uh, and and so when there's definitely a few that I've thought through, um, I don't have three quarters of a Hulk Hogan obit written and, and stored in a file somewhere. Um, uh, although there's, you know, there's definitely some people where I've jotted down sort of big think notes, sure. the directions I would go if I had to do. And, so, and if someone, you know, if you ever hear like if 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 we were the sort of person if I was the sort of person who would write an obituary for Rush Limbaugh, I may well have had it written half written by the time that he died only because he, there had been stories about his illness and and sort of impending death for some time. Right. But I don't I mean, I don't have anybody that's just in the hopper. It feels like such an artifact of newspaper days when you had these huge staffs that were, you know, kind of sitting around a lot of times like, oh, you're just sitting mm-hmm. around. Can you go ahead and freshen up that obit for that famous general? Yeah. Who's like in his 60s and we just want to make sure that's kind of ready to go. I don't know how much that happens outside of newspapers like the Times. I don't know how much that happens anywhere anymore. But people are just sitting around on 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 material. As you say, you write down notes about people that you might write about someday all the time and have them in a place where you can go get them. But um, but yeah, that is a very uh, <laughs> there are no episodes of the press box that are currently sketched out. We don't even have next Monday. We don't even know what we're doing on Monday. Forget, <laughs> forget when somebody famous goes. I mean, it's weird. I think that like, especially at the New York times, which is, I mean, the, 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 the role of obituary writer has become like slightly glamorized, right. Or, or, or legendary. Mm-hmm. They, the sort of uh, Bruce Weber and Margaret Fox. And, and I mean, there's a bunch, there's several names that sort of will come up and you'll remember every, every year or so. Right. Some, but and I think when Rush, I think when Rush died, if I remember correctly, the the obituary was immediately published and had a sort of had a note at the bottom that was like, "We will continue to update." You know, I mean, because they presumably they published what they had on file and didn't have a lot of present tense information about his actual death. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is it it is slightly an artifact, but it's also one that probably because it is sort of an interesting artifact that's been a lot of attention has been drawn to it at places like the times over the past couple of years. Yeah. I also think it's like one of those things that, um, everybody knows about like people who aren't in journalism, you know how they all know about Friday news dump. They know about pre-written obits. That's mm-hmm. the thing that just has kind of an unusually like wide circulation that that oh, happens. Yeah. They know more about it than how much it actually happens anymore. That's always funny to me. Uh, Brian Judson, this in a few weeks ago and I saved it. Speaking of saving stuff, Uh, Hi, I have a general listener question for you. I took this picture at CVS and it made me wonder what chain bookstore has, or excuse me, what chain store has the worst book section? So he went to the CVS little book rack and took a, took a photo and says, what chain store has the worst book section? Well, there's, okay, there's CVS and then there's CVS, where the book and magazine section is in the basement, which is a New York, a, a, a Manhattan specific <laughs> sort of thing. Yes. There's, I have, I, there's definitely been times where I've just been like shopping around the store thinking like, I'm going to like, oh, I'll go look at the book and the book rack just to see. And it, and I, it takes me half an hour to realize <laughs> it's on a different floor and it's right. scary down there. Um, 
I don't know. Usually when you find a book section outside of a, a traditional bookstore, it's a it it's sort of wonderful to find. But the but the drugstore ones are pretty dire. Yeah, I would also just nominate like the airport bookstore for worst book section. <laughs> I love the airport bookstore. I mean, no, it's, there are some that are great. Like there's one in Chicago and I can't remember the name. That's just awesome. Uh huh. But I'm talking about like the one that's like named like the the New York Daily News store. Oh yeah, right. The Hudson News or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's candy and there's there's like bugles and other things you could eat on the plane. And then there's like one rack of books. And even even when we were in the download era, remember you get on a plane, be like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I don't have anything to read, so I'm going to walk in there and I'm just going to buy one book. Yeah. And I'm going to read it on the plane. Uh, Hopefully, it's a long plane flight, and I'll just read the whole book right Mm -hmm. now. And you're like, it's a bunch of bestsellers, but I bet there's going to be something really cool to read. And you get it there. You're like, whoo, there's nothing to read. Like I was not prior to this moment was was not aware that Stuart Woods had like four bestsellers (laughs) at the same time on the same list. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. You would have taken John Grisham. Absolutely. In that scenario. Yeah. I don't we don't even want to read this, but like, okay, I will absolutely take a John Grisham page turner. It's like it's even worse. It's it's just really it's it's bad out there. Finally, David, correction of the week via Daniel Offman. I love this. NPR last month did a story on the musical Rent. It's the 25th anniversary of Rent. Cool idea for a story. Mm-hmm. NPR wanted to do a funny headline that riffed on the famous song from Rent, Seasons of Love. You know, 525,600. Yeah. You, uh-huh. you and I had the same drama teacher in high school, so I know you know that song. So <laughs> they the headline was 13,140,000 minutes. It's been 25 years since the first performance of Rent. That's funny. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, they had to correct that. Not all years, NPR writes, have 525,600 minutes. Oh, Leap no. years <laughs> have 527,040 minutes. <laughs> and there have been seven leap years in the last 25 years. And thus the headline has been changed to 13,150,080 minutes. <laughs> it's been 25 years since the first performance. Of oh, that's fantastic. You try to do something clever and you forget to add the leap years. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> It's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. All right. Monday's headline about Ted Cruz's trip to Cancun was sneak on a plane. Still think it should have been sneaks. Today's headline comes from Dan Perkel. It's from the New York Times. It's a typical life during the pandemic story. In this case, David, the Marsh family, the Times reports, gained extraordinary fame for their musical spoofs of lockdown life. I did not have a chance before this podcast to actually go and visit the work of the Marsh family, but I'm guessing they are doing family locked indoors and they are doing musical stuff. Okay. I want you to think of singing families, family music troops. Is it the Von, Von Trapped family or something? Oh, here we go. We're done. We're done. (laughs) Von Trapped. Oh, that's great. Thought I might have to lead you there a little bit. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We are back Monday. Doing, eh, we don't know what. It's not in the can. But we know we'll have more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>